Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Headstuff Studios in Dublin. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. Dara O'Shea is on leave. I'm your host, Pather Quivonic. I'm Garrosy McAvoy. And we have a very special guest in studio to talk a little bit about one of the overlooked parts of our Irish cultural heritage, the food. Martin McAnumara is the first person in Irish history to get a PhD in food history. You're a chef, you're a TV presenter, you're well-travelled, and you've written quite a bit extensively about the history of Irish food and its role as a, a part of our cultural heritage. So I'm going to ask you the tough question first. Why is Irish food so shit? <laughs> Well, the the easy answer to that <laughs> tough question is that it isn't. <laughs> that Irish food is actually brilliant, always has been brilliant. We always have had probably the best raw materials in the world. We didn't always appreciate them uh, to, 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 to as well as we should. But uh, these days, in, and when I say these days, in the last 10, 15, 20 years particularly, there's been an absolute revolution in food in Ireland. Uh, there's always been a revolution of food in Ireland towards produce, but there's been a complete revolution in the actual production of food in restaurants and in hotels and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think it was, I can't remember, was it 1990, oh, maybe 2011 or something like that, that uh, the Guide de Routard, which was basically the French travel Bible of, 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 of uh, travel that they said that Irish food is as good, if not better, as the food of France. You oh, know? So, oh, wow. There you go. Praise from Caesar. Strong there statement yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I suppose you talk about the recent revolution in in food preparation here in, in Irish restaurants and the likes, and you know names spring to mind like uh, if you're talking Michelin star Patrick Ebo and and other things, and uh, even just thinking of stuffing on the on on the Bib Gourmand on that sort of mid range that, that I'd be a lot more familiar with than Michelin star restaurants. One of my favourite restaurants is Pichet, and I know that Stephen Gibson when he became the first head chef at Pichet, the idea was to take Irish ingredients and serve them with a French twist. Was that the kind of thing we had to do? Did we have to stop cooking like Irish people <laughs> to make Irish ingredients really shine? Uh, no, not really. I suppose um, you know, you could say that French, uh, you know, the French have really dominated food all over the world. You know, culturally, that most places in the Western world, up until relatively recently, if you were to 
identify what were the top restaurants, whether they were in New York or in London or, or even, you could say, Copenhagen, they would have been French mm. or French-inspired. And they would have also been the most expensive, you know, the most expensive, the most highly sought after. But there has been, I suppose it could be an anti-globalisation uh, reaction in the last number of years. It started off, you could say, with Spain, uh, with El Bulli, and before mm. that, there was in, in the Basque region, you know, with um, oh, the Arzac. They took the concept that uh, Paul Bocou started in, in, in France with, with just this idea about nouvelle cuisine, and they started doing new, nouvelle cuisine, espanol, you could say, new yeah. Spanish cuisine. And then, you know, the likes of uh, Ferran Adria, who was in El Bulli mm. uh, in, in Catalonia, and he had a look at the whole idea about just not copying, you know, creating. And he created a whole sort of cluster of people around him. And one of the people who worked for him there was a fellow called, uh, was uh, Rennie, oh jeez, Rennie Redzepi, uh, who uh, opened up Noma up in Copenhagen. Mm. And then... There was this new Nordic food movement there, so they sort of came together. The Nordic count- countries, like so, basically you had you know you had both Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark come together and sort of develop a manifesto that they would champion local food from their area and and local traditions. So you could say you know this is sort of a reaction to that sort of you know the I suppose we the, kind of reach saturation point of the haute cuisine, the, the, the whole, French but, but it, it, what it is is that it's oat, instead of being oat. French cuisine that would dominate the whole world that we would take that that this new haute cuisine that it was really local sustainable uh, regional these were you know uh, champion the best foods and and tradition as well and that was the whole idea about tradition like the idea about foraging and all that sort of stuff mm. you know you know you could say that it went it went nuts you know what I mean where <laughs> you're, people going mad about foraging so Jesus sure that's the type of things our grandparents did all the time yeah, you know yeah, what I mean and there was no one yeah, fancy and anything about it you know what I mean a yeah. bit weird about spending 120 quid for a bowl of dillisk. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I used to be paid a tenner a black sack for that down in Waterford every yeah, summer. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So I have Ferran Adria's cookbook at home, not the gastronomic one, but the food he used to cook for his staff, the family meal. And basically what he does in that one, you probably read it yourself, it's amazing. He just takes the, the, the concept of gastronomy and taste and all of the different uh, parts that make up a good meal and he, and he sort of puts it down to something simple that he can serve his staff before they go and serve the, the foams and the, the heirs to, to the paying customers. So at its heart, it's, it's really good, tasty food based on good ingredients. I mean... In the Irish context, we actually really do have those good ingredients. You know, the what puts such a premium on Irish ingredients around the world? Why is the beef so good? Why is the butter so good? What, what makes it so sought after? Well, both the beef and the butter have the same answer, and the answer is grass, and the answer is rain. You know what I mean? So <laughs> We've really, got rain. Yeah. you know, <laughs> the rain it's, got the grass. Yeah, it's 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 all really down to climate. You know, the thing that quite often we give out about, and yo, know, a soft day, thank God, or this, that, or the other, or we're always constantly talking about the weather. That is the one factor that makes our beef and our butter and our milk and everything so wonderful because basically grass grows nearly all year round, mm. which means that you can actually have your uh, cattle, now whether they're beef cattle or whether they're dairy cattle, so hence your butter or your beef, uh, you have them out on grass. Mm. So not only are they uh, f- grass fed, but they're also self fed, which is another 
important thing because right. people talk about feed miles, right? Or people talk about food miles. Yeah. And the whole idea about food miles is about, you know, I mean, the fact that you're eating local and all that sort of stuff. But there's also a thing about feed miles. Like, there's no point eating beef that comes from down the road if they're actually being fed on corn that's been shipped or soy or something else and yeah. sorghum that's been shipped yeah. from so South America. The, the overall carbon footprint yeah. of your food. Because like, as, as, as an environmentalist, I try and stay environmentally conscious. It drives me crazy when people go mad for like, oh, I found these vegetables with no plastic on them. Isn't brilliant. But you're like, they're shipped in from Peru. So, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to look at the holistic picture. Yeah, but the holistic picture is, is difficult as well because like the, you know, the trouble with all of this is that we all want to do the right thing if we know what the right thing is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, for example, you know, there's the whole debate about whether it's more uh, environmentally sustainable to, I remember I was at a conference over in Oxford a number of years ago when people were talking about this whole idea about sustainability and that and someone was saying, is it more sustainable and it's more sort of ethical to eat uh, lamb from Oxford or lamb from New Zealand that's been brought into Oxford and basically they were figuring out that whichever way the lamb was produced in New Zealand it was mm. better to bring it in and that that was nearly as sustainable or maybe even more sustainable even uh, though it's got a 14 hour flight to land in Oxford well it's coming probably by it's probably by boat you know yeah, what I mean yeah. with dirty diesel or whatever so <laughs> we say nothing but, <laughs> oh we but, didn't factor that yeah, in yeah. Yeah. but, the, but the, the flip side of that is you know the, the, the flip side of that was the idea about you know it's probably better to be eating a tomato that was grown in a glass house in the Canary Islands and flown in because the glass house was only heated using the sun. The sun. Yeah. Whereas if you have a, a tomato that was grown in a glass house up in North County, Dublin, there could have been diesel heating the glass house there as well as the sun because we don't have enough sun. You know what I mean? So it's just, unfortunately, you know, we're, you know, life is confusing sometimes. Yeah. And the more, you know, like this whole, you, you, there was this Eat Lancet report recently, you know, there were everyone was talking about, you know, stepping away from beef and stepping away from dairy and stepping away from this. Like, I don't see anything sustainable in stopping drinking milk in Ireland when our cows are here yeah. and yeah. then suddenly bringing in soya milk or you know, yeah. any of these you know, coconut milk, almond milk. Apparently, or, almond, or, or, apparently or, almond is the worst for like carbon footprint because almond farms in California have destroyed natural orange groves. They've yeah. destroyed the water system. They're causing droughts in California. They're putting yeah. farmers yeah. off their land all to create almond milk so and, and and you know the same that there was issues with quinoa over in south america when suddenly certain certain products become sort of faddish in one part of the world then you know what was maybe a normal natural food in a place suddenly gets priced out of the local uh, audience and that sort of stuff and there's whole there's all sorts of issues so yeah no food is a is a complicated <laughs> issue yeah <laughs> So, Martine, you mentioned about um, about Irish products being really uh, sought after, like our butter and our beef. And it always gives me a little bit of pride when I'm abroad and I see like Kerry Bowles in a fridge somewhere and it's really expensive. I'm like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> um, but why historically then has, has Ireland had such a, a weird relationship with food? Like we're not known for our food. I mean, you'll see uh, an Irish pub, but you're not going to see an Irish restaurant. We have a, a strange relationship while we do make good quality ingredients we don't necessarily make them into to good quality no i'm not saying they're not good quality but we don't necessarily have uh, a reputation for being good at food i'll tell you what we always had a reputation for was our hospitality okay, okay. so i think if we start there We've always been renowned for our hospitality. You know, we always say it's you know, people, someone comes into your house, someone comes anywhere, whatever. We're never happy until we actually have a drink in someone's hand, whether mm -hmm. it's an alcoholic drink or a cup of tea or whatever. And also maybe a hang sandwich or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the idea is, you know, that's it. You've done your job. You, you know, it's in our DNA. 
yeah. that yeah. hospitality as in making sure that actually you, a stranger or someone new comes in, that you give them something to drink, something to eat, something to drink, grant. Now, you're correct in that we didn't historically, now, depending on how far back you yeah. go, but this idea of have that tradition. And I would sort of make the case that part of that comes from when food stopped being food and started to be a commodity. Okay. And what happened is we became so good at beef and at butter that we have been exporting it. Basically, we've been exporting it, you know, globally for over 400 years. Mm-hmm. And when it became a commodity, then the, you know, it stopped from being part of the national diet to being actually a cash crop that, yeah. you know, people kept and saved and valued and sold and they were able to pay the rent. So in some ways, it's part of colonialization is that we had to actually do without so as to pay the rent to the landlords yeah. by stopping. We could see that the consumption of butter in Ireland reduced uh, radically once this happened. The same, well, we, we don't really talk about beef in the same way because in Ireland, historically, we didn't have a great, you know, our cattle were revered for their milk mm. and their mm. butter mm. and mm. their cheeses. And when I talk about cheese, people, you know, this is, again, one of the misconceptions is people think that Ireland has no rich cheese history until, you know, Gina Ferguson or any of these people came down mm. to West Cork and started, you know, making Malines or Doris or mm. any of these, you know, uh, these cheeses in the 60s. But like going back centuries Going back to Ashling McCunglin from the, the 13th century or whatever, we have uh, you know we have evidence of you know 30 different types of cheeses, yeah. you know, between ferments and rough milks and you know sure. semi rough. Queen, Queen Maeve, Queen Maeve was killed with a ball of cheese, wasn't she? A roll of hard cheese. Yeah, Tonach was the name of yeah. the hard cheese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. so it's kind of like it's kind of like the Irish whiskey scenario that for many centuries, for many years. We had hundreds of distilleries producing the finest whiskey. Pre-prohibition in America, we had the largest market share of whiskey over there. And then we just centralised everything and everything went down to three or four distilleries and we just, everything became bland. It became samey. And now, only now, in recent years, are we starting to see a revival of the craft distilleries and the different types of whiskies and the different grains being used and the different methods of, of, of distillation. Are we seeing that in, in our, our produce, particularly our cheeses, I'm thinking? Because like that, I'd have grown up on, on Calvita. I thought, you going, I thought you were going to say a group on Paddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not allowed to say that anymore. Apparently, there's yeah, no statute yeah, yeah. of limitations on child abuse. <laughs> no, but, it, but actually, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the whiskey because the, 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 the whiskey thing is quite interesting because, it, you know, it's not quite as simplistic because what happened really, as in you had prohibition, which you mentioned, but also you had a thing, you know, you had a thing called independence, as in that, you know, 1916, 1921, 1922, we broke away from the British Empire and one of the things that made whiskey, Irish whiskey, such a global leader was that basically every mm. officer's mess, every officer's tent would have a bottle of Irish whiskey in it all over the world. Okay, so suddenly so we lost our biggest customer when we, the British Army were we, we, we lost. Out. Yeah, we lost our British. Our, our, we lost our, our biggest customer because the because our biggest customer suddenly says, "Jesus, what are we buying all this Irish whiskey for?" When they're after having fighting with us and throwing mm. us out, sort of thing. And we have so, the Scots, and we have the Scots who are still loyal. <laughs> so we stick with them. And then what happened then, as I say, with the with the prohibition was that well, two things happened. You know, they say actually they're, 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 that uh, John F. Kennedy's. Uh, father came over Joseph P. Kennedy Joseph P. Kennedy and he contacted De Valera and, and he basically wanted a deal because he got word that the prohibition was stopping and he wanted to have product ready for when it stopped and he came over and he came to Ireland first 
and the Irish government wanted nothing to do with him because basically he says, Asher, that's an Anglo-Irish Protestant business. That's not Irish and local. <laughs> right? So what did he do? He goes over to Scotland and he signs a deal over there with uh, the biggest producers over there and suddenly they had stuff ready then, ready to go and then overnight they took over. You know the, the 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 industry, and we never we never got it mm. back. Like we're literally only only at at something like five or six percent or something like that is ridiculous. Like, but but you know we're as you said, it's the fastest growing with cheese. It's slightly different because what we did is we had this cheese tradition. Now the tradition. The cheese tradition was cheese in all manners because we talk about basically, uh, as we say, blahoch, you know, buttermilk. We talk about rough cheese, different types of cheese, like cottage cheese, all sorts of type, mm. yogurt, all that sort of stuff. There was all these different traditions, but they sort of disappeared. And with the disappearance of it, then a new industry came in with sort of the uh, food corporations and the food, um, or sorry, the, the cooperatives. The cooperatives. Yeah. And next thing around the 50s, they started developing this sort of plastic cheese. You could say, you know, the Calvita, we can all think about the, you know, the cheese suddenly yeah. came in triangles or something can like that. You, you know what I mean? Stephen and Roach has a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you had the Galti, uh, you know, you had the Galti and the Calvita and all this sort of stuff. And then later on, Easy Singles. And then later on, you know, we actually talk about innovation. Like, you know, they were really driving innovation and the idea about cheese strings. Cheese strings. You know what yes. I mean? Like, how can Real you. Real appeal of yeah, cheese. Yeah, you know, <laughs> how can you make cheese look cool sort of thing? You know what I mean? So, if suddenly that's what people think cheese is you know what I mean mm. you know I always think that, like life is and history particularly into history you just see that actually life is just it's a number of cycles and you see the same things problems uh, opportunities everything sort of appear and reappear and, and we tend to make the same mistakes or very similar mistakes and hence the importance of actually studying history so I hope you don't make <laughs> you the don't same mistakes yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of history obviously one of the greatest um, the first things people learn about Irish history is that we suffered on Gurthamore and part of the problem, obviously not the only problem, was the failure of the potato crop because of blight. And we were so dependent on the potato crop. Now, of course, there's it's a multifaceted part of history. We were actually exporting a lot of food at the time. That didn't stop. We weren't allowed to hold on to our own. There's so many different things to it. But we were very reliant on the potato since it came in because the potato... Is a it's it's a plant that'll give you it, it's easily grown. It'll give you all of your nutrients. You can survive on potatoes alone. I suppose my question as a food historian, I want to go back beyond that because one thing we don't know growing up, we don't learn it in history books or anything like that. What did we live on before Walter Raleigh and other explorers brought back the potato from South America? We lived on milk. <laughs> <laughs> no, like Jesus, and, and, the skin must yeah, have been yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know we 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 basically did live on milk as such as in you know you go back to now not milk alone because we also had oats and barley and we also had you know naturally we had meats and the rest of it you know but milk was or what we call the white meats which are these bon via the, you know the butter the milk the curds of different shapes. They were the essence of the Irish diet. Now, linked in with porridge, you know, oats as mm. done in like a brochon or a, or, or a letza or whatever, done with oat cakes, all that sort of stuff, done with sort of flatbreads and all that sort of stuff with uh, made from barley and from wheat and uh, and the rest. Now, we didn't we didn't really have a... It was flatbreads because we didn't have a tradition of leavened Leavening bread. bread yeah. It was really... That came in with the Anglo-Normans and the idea about the built-up oven and that yeah. sort of technology. Mm. And even 
when so you know, we, one we, of the basically things we were doing griddle cakes over fire. We, yeah, we're basically we? doing griddle. Yeah, we're making griddle cakes and that, and then sort of drying them against the drying them. Sort of, there was these little griddle stands that you could get mm. near the fire, and they would dry the oat cakes and that sort yeah. of stuff. And then they could be carried out into the field, and you know they were they were sort of you know when you're working out the fields, you can there were your picnic sort of thing. Uh, but you know, naturally we had fish, and naturally we had uh, the the pig has always been a huge part of, of, of the diet. You know, bacon particularly because there's a way because we're talking about pre refrigeration and all that sort of stuff. So it's a way of preserving food, and uh, also then naturally you know lamb and or well actually mutton was lamb is sort of quite a modern thing. Mutton you know was the flavour we liked the flavour of old sheep. Uh, plus. Why would you kill a lamb? The whole idea is that meat yeah. w- meat was a secondary source from sheep. Like wool was wool the main was thing. You want to get a couple of winters you know, out of the wool oh, yeah. first, yeah. yeah. You know, and wool was huge. You know, this is. I think we forget this that wool was the absolute. Like you know, we think now about sort of uh, the smart economy and this sort of stuff. Like wool and sheep back then was the Googles and was the <laughs> was the was the apples and all of, of the day. So if you wanted to start a startup, you just got yourself a yo and, a, and uh, you, got yourself a ram. A few, you got yourself a few yos. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, only needed, you only needed the one ram, but you yeah, need a good yeah, few yeah. yos. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if the ram was up for the yeah. job. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey guys, my name is Tom Moran and I am the host of Personality Bingo, an alternative interview podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. The premise is simple. It's 60 minutes on the clock, 60 balls in the bingo machine and 60 corresponding questions from anything from do you believe in ghosts? Do you cry often? And have you ever had a near death experience. The guests are really wide ranging from actors, comedians, songwriters. We've had it all. If that sounds like something that would be up your street, come and check out Personality Bingo with Tom Moore. So on, on top of on top of the food, um so we had we had we had these meats and these how do we cook it back then? Because I know one thing you do actually learn, and this is a term that maybe not everybody's heard, but a fullocht fia was one yeah, way of doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, sometimes there's some confusion about the fullocht fia as well, because like, you know, there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of drama about the fullocht fia, you know, and we sort of tend to link it with mm. nafina and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And the idea about even a fia being a deer and that you could actually cook a whole deer or a whole beast or a whole animal in these fullocht fia. And for those who are not familiar with the fullocht fia, it's basically a, a pyrotechnology uh, in that you would dig a hole in the ground, normally near a stream. You would line it with wood or with stones. You would bring in, so you'd fill it up, so it would naturally fill up with the water course. So you just divert the stream. You divert into the, the stream hole. into the hole as such, and then you would build a fire beside it and you would have stones in the fire so you would heat the stones so the stones were really hot then you would wrap your meat in normally uh, straw or stuff like that and and put it into the into the or you'd probably you, you could either put it into the hole with the water and then heat it up gradually with the with the hot stones or else you'd put it in you'd boil you'd bring the water up to the boil using hot stones put in your meat and then gradually by adding another hot stone from the fire every 5 10 minutes you'd be able to maintain okay. regulate uh, the temperature. Regulate the temperature yeah. as such, you know. But there's a lot of discussions about those fullocht fee as well, that there were they used also for brewing, were they used also there was another flip of it because that there's natural lime that would come off the stones and as that lime would react with the fat of the animals, it would create soap. And then the whole idea of then that people would use them afterwards for nearly like uh saunas, you know, so that they oh go my in, God, you know. I love this. So uh, you I'm, know I'm down with they, this. That they, you know, that cooking they, and washing yeah, in the yeah, one pot. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm gonna I mean? take yeah. this info back to Finland and tell them to shove their 
personas. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because all you needed then is actually you created a sort of a bit of a roof, a, a portable roof on top of this and you had the steam, you had the whole lot, you know, you See, had the natural soap there as well, you know what I mean? So, uh, well, particularly in winter times, you know, if you were if you were out and about uh, and cooking beside the stream and all that, you'd want to stay warm. So it seems like it co- sort of covered all the bases. Yeah, absolutely. Now, but you know, since the amount of work that went into it, you would imagine that it would only be for sort of ceremonial yeah. or special fe- festivities. You know what I mean? It wasn't that every day. All right, yeah. what do we have for dinner today, man? Uh, all right, here, dig, dig, dig a, a hole there. You know what I mean? Sort of thing, I just you know. have to divert yeah. the river. <laughs> yeah, because like literally, we have this. You know, an awful lot of cultures have this. You know, you have the uh, clam bakes over in in, in America, and mm. you have in you know the hangies mm. over in, in in New Zealand and and down South America. They have other similar types of of. of um, of 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 sort of technology as such, you know. Yeah. So there's nothing sort of you know these these traditions are found in and most traditions are actually found in cultures all over the world. Just they're slightly different. Yeah. So it seems on the surface of it then that Fionn and Nafina weren't going out with their shovel and digging a new fulakfia every single day and no, no matter no, what the no, story sounds no, like, no, a no. lot of work for like no. a Tuesday. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. When you just want to, I just want, just want a ham sandwich. I just want a ham sandwich. Had a long day, guys. I'm not going to build a full of here. But so, so they always had, you know, they always had their bag of hazelnuts with them, you know, and they'd be picking the the ro- slow berries or the ro- the rowan berries or the blackberries or whatever was in 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 in, in, uh, so, in season. You but know, I mean that, that that brings us to, to to foraging, and we have kind of come, you know, full circle in in that foraging is now, as you mentioned earlier on, it's top of the list when it comes to two mission and three. Michelin star restaurants you're looking at Noma pioneering it in, in, in Copenhagen but I mean foraging is, is it's as old as the hills like I used oh, to yeah. I used to pick up I used to pick Dillisk and no, you're, not, you're, you're not quite old as the hills, not, not quite <laughs> old as the hills. but I remember like I, and yeah. I would have learned it off my grandmother who's still with us she's in her 90s and she did it and going back generations down in Waterford on the south coast they pick Dillisk dry it out big bags into town sell it but I mean that that sort of thing hasn't quite hit the. Maybe it's hit the the haute cuisine, and maybe it's still down in the the the. the we look back in our, our cultural memory. I remember you were quoted in an article in the Dublin Enquirer last year about Winkles mm. and how unpopular they are, and yet they used to be huge. What yeah. is? I have no idea. Harry Winkles. Winkles. Yeah. I, I know the word. Yeah, I know yeah. I know this one. They're, 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 they're little gastropods. Gastro- yeah, yeah, little gastropods. So basically, they're, they're, they're shells. One, yeah. one shell as such. So basically, they're like a small snail, you could say. Okay. Right? And you would eat them nearly the same creatures. way yeah. as an escargot, isn't that you normally need a special thing to pull them out or whatever. We use normally a little pin or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But they're absolutely gorgeous. But what's interesting about the Winkles is that still the tradition of the Winkles is still alive and well down in Kilkee in County Clare. So down at Kilkee, on the seafront, there's actually two competing stands, stalls, selling cooked winkles and dillisk, right? So these are, there's little pockets. And this is interesting because actually when we, we did the, the Blasta program for TG Cahar there uh, last year. Um, uh, that, that was the one where you travelled around the country, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So we at, yeah. went to eight different parts of Ireland and we were looking at what is the local, you know, tradi- is the, you know number one, is there sort of a, a, a local food culture in a regional food culture, mm. you could say, and is there different pockets? You know, because people, number one, people get confused and they, they have this sort of notion that Ireland doesn't have a food culture in the first place without talking about having a regional food culture. Yeah. And what's interesting is when you do mm. travel around, you start seeing the, the various different 
traditions and the different names like we're talking about mother folklore and the different terminology mm. like you're talking there down in, in, in Waterford and in Ryan I think is it Trus- Truscal or Trusker that they call seaweed down there mm. I, I hadn't heard that term down there for sort of seaweed and even uh, to do with uh, certain uh, the not the periwinkles periwinkles yeah we call them fuichen in uh, in Connemara but they call them mungan down in Kerry oh. you know and, and this is the same species exact separated, same yeah. separated you know, by more or less one piece of water like just yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. other side of the exact, general estuary yeah, it's, yeah. you know in the same way as we you know, like we think about what we call a runach like a mm, mackerel mackerel yeah. mackerel be mackerel down in Kerry mm. would be runachy in Connemara and would be oh Christ I'm after forgetting the name of it now there's another name for it up in Donegal Morlusk Morlus, Morlus, I think they call it up in Donegal so that for the same fish that you know, we talk about a wealth of language that we've three different words in the yeah. Irish language, and probably more. You know what I mean? That's just in three different dialects there uh, going. But sorry, when we travelled around with Blasta, mm. you know, we to 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 see you know the Drishin and the tripe or stuff down in, in Cork, you know, to come and to have the bla and the beautiful oysters, Hearty's oysters, and and the we had again we had Dillisk actually down in 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 um, in Port Larga. And, uh, you know, Dublin, like nowhere, the only place that does coddle is Dublin. Yeah. yeah. Right? You know. It's always saying that. <laughs> it is not always saying that. I am fighting the good fight award team on behalf of coddle. It's one of my favourite dishes. And I don't have a problem. I have no problem oh, at all. Oh, you know Derek wasn't here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Derek, our usual host, Derek O'Shea, is on leave at the moment. He, he Now, it, it would be wrong of me to say that he hates coddle. Because he's never tasted it. Yeah. He actually refuses to taste but it. But see, this is it. He hates yeah. the idea of coddle. And yeah. that's the bit that I will rail against. That's because he hates the idea of Dublin. If anybody... <laughs> he's from Rathfarnham. <laughs> all right, all right. I thought... All right. I thought, I thought there was Kerry connections no, there. No, you know, no, oh, no, no, no. Deep back, deep there back. There you go. Gone. Yeah, right. years back. The, the, so I don't have any problem. If somebody has a bowl of coddle and says, that's disgusting, I never want to have that again. Fair enough, you've tried it, fair play to you. But there just seems to be this sort of pushback against this particular working class Dublin staple. It's not the working class, it's just boiled fucking sausages <laughs> looking at me. But there's loads, there's loads of cultures that boil the, their sausages. Of course there is. Yes, there is, but it just, it just looks sad. It just looks really sad. Well, I, <laughs> that's my problem. I, 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 I'm... In the same church as you now, because what you got. I've been trying to promote the coddle all over for years. And I remember I did a cooking demonstration, it must be 10 years ago, down in the Fee and the GA Club in Glasnevin there. And uh, had around 150 people in. I had a big pot, but I used uh, cocktail sausages so that they'd be a sausage for everyone oh, when we was doing the tasting and all that sort of stuff. And I remember what you call it, one of the mammies coming around, she says, Jesus, I look down, it's like a plate of boiled willies. <laughs> You know the nickname, the Dublin nickname for the sausage and the coddle is the widow's memory. Oh yeah, that's oh. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, what's interesting about the coddle and this idea about the the, the locality of it, right? There was an it's going back, it might be going back nearly twenty years ago, where the Irish Prison Service decided that they were going to do something about the food, and they were going to make sure that each prisoner in Ireland had proper nutrition, and they were going to work nutrition into the menus and develop a cyclical menu, and they came up with all this plan. And there was nearly a revolution <laughs> because they had coddle on, say, a Tuesday, right? Now, everyone in Mount Joy and in Wheatfield and everywhere else, they wanted coddle three days a week, okay? <laughs> oh, that's but, not where I thought that was going. Right? <laughs> but 
down on Port Leash and in Limerick and uh, <laughs> elsewhere they nearly went on they hunger strike no because it says we're not eating that that is Dublin stuff <laughs> you know so I, you know it's fascinating you know it really is fascinating you know what's what's outside of you grew up in Dublin um, so you like coddle I like coddle yeah but I grew up in Dublin but because my parents aren't from Dublin I didn't grow up Eating coddle. All oh, right, okay. And this is the problem. My dad's not from Dublin, but he just he fell in love with coddle at a young age yeah, yeah. and passed it on. They, to yeah, they yeah. got him when he was they young. Got him, yeah. They got him oh, young. Yeah. They got him at about mm. 16. Yeah. And the first time I saw coddle, I says, I was like yourself, and I always said, Jason, I won't eat that stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and part of what made me eat it was that there was a French chef visiting a, a friend of mine's house, and it, uh, it was Rudy O'Croher, his, his, his mom made the coddle. And I had to, the French chef is tasting this, I yeah. had to taste this. And once I tasted it, like yeah. that's once you get over that, it's once you actually try it, it's absolutely, it is, it's gorgeous. Like it's just absolutely stunning. Mm. And um, I never went back, you know. No. I did, I actually, the only food program I've ever appeared on was on TG Car. It was a series called Be a Hookish. And they asked um, five of us who liked coddle to turn up and just give, we met in Mulligans on Poolbeg Street. Just at turn up midday. and explain yourself. Just turn up and eat coddle and talk about the coddle and your memories of coddle. So we all we all rocked in five lads with beards from Dublin, <laughs> all Gwaelgory, and we all rocked into Mulligan's at Pool Bag Street at twelve o'clock. But the chef was delayed because they were filming two episodes a day. So the chef was delayed down in Monkstown talking about seafood or something. So she wasn't able to make it for another hour. So they said, Do "You want a pint?" So we, oh, we'll have a pint. We'll have a pint. We'll have one. So we had a pint, and then we had four or five pints. <laughs> and then the producer came in and said, "She'll be another hour. Do you want another pint?" I said, okay, we'll stretch to two. So so we had another. Four or five points. <laughs> so by the time it came around and we all spoke to, we did our piece to camera and we spoke about the coddle and we ate the sausages and we ate the potatoes and everything. It was lovely. It was great. And we had a few more points. We all went home. A few months later, it was broadcast and I was there watching it with my wife going, look, this is my bit. This is my bit. And they just used one wide shot of the five of us eating coddle and then they cut straight to the next scene. <laughs> we were way too pissed <laughs> to talk about coddle. But I'll say one thing. After a feed of points, there was nothing better than that bowl of coddle that they sat in front of me. I but don't I, know if that's a, a way Dinner for so I've never I don't drink alcohol so I've never had a kebab because I don't drink alcohol because anything on a sweaty meat stick I don't want to thanks <laughs> no thank you if I if it's just a rotisserie sweaty meat stick no thank you Taco Bell that's for drunk people that's not for sober people <laughs> so if you're like oh yeah it's great after a feed of pints I don't know if that's it's a also good thing. it's also great on a very cold winter's day but actually talk about after a feed of pints there's a great logic behind coddle because coddle was always what they called a Friday night dish. But it was Friday night, Saturday morning dish. Uh. Because the idea was that the lads went out to the pub on a Friday night. By the time they'd rock back home, it would be after midnight. So technically it would be Saturday. So technically on Friday you only had to eat fish, you couldn't eat meat. So there was a pot of coddle waiting for them on the thing and they'd lash into it. Do you know what I mean? So it was... No, but it's that if you look at another culture, if you look at the Jewish culture and the whole link of Judaism with sort of casseroles and that sort of stuff... The idea is that they can't work on the Sabbath. Mm. So yeah. by actually making you the meat, by making, putting all the food together into the casserole and then putting that into a slow oven, that that's cooking. You're not cooking. You're not working. The oven is doing the work for you, doing the slow cooking. Yeah. And that's that tradition. So again, you know what I mean? You can see these sort of cultural yeah, yeah. things. Uh, and they're, mm. they're, you know, When you look at them, when you ask some deeper questions, you, you see the patterns. So you mentioned quite rightly there, fish on a Friday used to be a big thing. But now, if you speak to the majority of Irish people, the only experience they have of fish is it's rectangular and it's in batter and you get it with chips and salt and vinegar. We used to eat a lot more fish than we do. Yeah, we did and we didn't. Yeah. So this is always confusing, you know what I mean? Because uh, uh, 
I have gone through a lot of the records and stuff like that and uh, archaeological digs and all this sort of stuff and they figured now that we, I don't think we ever ate more than 5% of our diet was ever fish. Now naturally there would be, um, that's the average. Mm, yeah. yeah. That naturally, if you lived in a coastal, lived in a coastal area, area you'd yeah. have a lot more yeah. and all that sort and of stuff. If you lived in Athlone, yeah. you would never see a mackerel. Yeah. Not a mackerel, <laughs> but plenty of salmon probably yeah, or something, yeah. the trout or perch or whatever, bream. But uh, the rest of it, the, the issue, you know, they're able to, archaeologists now can actually analyse our bones, you know, and they can tell from our bones what then our what, was, was. what our diet was yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So the way I look at it, you know, people always ask, and, and it does make sense, like we're an island nation surrounded by seas. None of us, we're, we're never more than 100 uh, miles. No part of Ireland is more than 100 miles from, from, from open water sort of thing. And without talking about the number of lakes and rivers. But I would sort of argue that the reason we didn't eat so much fish is that we didn't have to. We had so much other. Again, it goes back to the rain <laughs> and the grass yeah. and, and the cows be of and, and the bone of a bee of Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you, when you have all this other stuff, Grant, great, yeah. why would you? It's a you lot know. of effort to catch a fish. I've that is the other, yeah, that is the other side of it. It's dangerous. Like, the Atlantic Ocean is really yeah. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, when you've got a grand lamb in there, yeah. which is good, yeah. yeah. And you also need technology, you know. Yeah. You also yeah. need boats and, and, and nets and all that sort of stuff. That, that, is, that is one thing, like, it's a common criticism, is like, why did so many people die during the famine? You're surrounded by water, and you just go, do you own a boat? Yeah. Well, yeah most people yeah. do not own yeah. a boat, you yeah. know. It's not that easy yeah. to just go and... And even though, fish. even those who did own boats and even those who did have nets, one of the first things they quite often did after the first year of the famine is that they sold them to get enough money to buy seed potato for next year because they didn't know it was going to go on for five years. Of course, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So they thought this is just a, a blip. But there's another flip side to that. And the flip side to that is like there was no place to safely land a boat mm. up until the congested districts board started doing their work around the 1870s, 1880s, yeah. 1890s. So there were no I mean, piers. You there was no piers. Like yeah. Nemo, you know, uh, uh, not finding Nemo but Nemo the, the, the engineer you know uh, built all of these piers all along the western seaboard and all the congested districts which suddenly made fishing uh, an option with yeah. there was a safe place to actually you know bring a boat in land a boat going further back after the Battle of Kinsale there was a ruling that no Irish person could own a boat over a certain size because they did not want Ireland to develop their own navy because, you know, Britannia ruled the waves or waved the rules, whichever way you look at it. <laughs> but uh, that was what gave uh, England its strength and its power. And what's interesting as well is that, you know, even though Henry VIII broke with the church, uh, even Elizabeth, his daughter Elizabeth I, she realised the importance of fishermen towards manning her, the British Navy when battle happened. Mm. So she actually kept, uh, she kept that it should be fish on Friday, even though she they'd broken with Rome and all that sort of stuff, mm. because she wanted to keep the British fishing fleet strong because she needed sailors for when they went to war. Wow. So all of these things, you know, th th these things aren't. So if it wasn't for fishing on Friday, the Spanish Armada might have won. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then we'd all be eating paella and tapas and amon iberico. And we, we well, some people say that actually the reason we actually eat potatoes is because the Spanish Armada didn't won, win because there is a you know there is a, a school of thought that actually some potatoes that had been on board some of them Armada ships like were actually washed ashore that people took them and all that sort of ah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it's it, the same it, reason people from yeah. Connemara have dark hair and sallow yeah. skin. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, we, I think we it wasn't just the potatoes that uh, washed uh, up. Uh, no, I think I, th I think we figured. 
that one out now from the Human Genome Project because actually, you know, there was a there was a mini ice age, and you know, anyone in the north of Europe sort of retreated down to sort of north of Spain, yeah. and in the move back up, some of them now we realise actually with that you know, maritime technology did come up by boat, so it wasn't just waiting on a land bridge coming over. So some did come by sea and so hence the back. genes. Yeah. Hence the genes. There's such even if you go down to the Basque region you'll see it's like you're it's like looking at Connemara lads, you know what I mean? It's uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, let's uh, just put the uh, Garadine off a holiday to Pamplona. Yeah, yeah. Like not interested anymore. She's, she's not into boiled sausages <laughs> now. Our Connemara lads, you know <laughs> You can't boil it your ritz over these days then. So what what's the future looking like for Irish food for Irish cuisine? What's uh you know what what do you, what do you reckon of that the, the are we going to are we going to be mentioned in the same in the same in future years we're going to be mentioned along with the Japanese and the Danes and the Catalans and the Basques and the French. I'm very hopeful that actually they're going to forget about all of those and they're going to be just talking about us. You know what I mean? Because I really believe that within the next ten years that. Uh, Ireland will have become an absolute global food destination for foodies, you know, for 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 food tourists. I want to mm. say real, not just normal food tourists, but those sort of high end food tourists. Mm. Because what we have is we have a a whole young generation of really really talented chefs out there. A lot of them are working in Ireland at the moment, but a lot of them are actually working abroad at the moment, but planning on coming home. Mm. You know, people who've worked up, lads like mm. Kuan Green and all who've been up in Noma, Louise Bannon, loads of them all over the place, you know, what I mean? who've worked in all these different places who are now wanting to come home and open up their own place. Lads like uh, Mark Moriarty, who won the you know the the San Pellegrino Young Chef of the Year back I think twenty fifteen or so. Mm. You know he's 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 been off in Australia. He's back. He's back in the greenhouse. But I'm sure his plans for opening up his own place in due course. Mm. And that and that that'll all happen. You know what I mean? Is the, so. is the, is the the obvious thing that's affecting almost everybody, particularly in Dublin at the moment, is property prices and rent on places. Is that going to affect young chefs? It is, but if you actually have a look at the trends, if you have a look at what, what, what's happened, some of the last three latest Michelin star restaurants that are open now, naturally all three of them were down in Cork, uh, but they were opening. You say naturally. No, 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 no. I stand no. by that. I stand by that. <laughs> well, actually, we, you know, the Cork really needed some Michelin oh, yeah. stars because they hadn't had Michelin stars in so long. You know what I mean? So really, they, they you know, they were they were only getting back to the equilibrium. You know. <laughs> so uh, the there's uh, the dig I wanted, Martin. Yeah, there yeah. <laughs> but uh, what? No, what's 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 interesting there is that they've opened up in small little places that mm. they're actually sh- small. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're they're they only do. You know, I think. Um, they do either 18 seats or 25 seats or 30, you know, no more than 30 seats. So they're manageable and then they're working in places where they can manage the rent and they can manage without yeah. a huge staff and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, how sustainable that is now, I'm not sure. You know, and again, there is, you know, there's studies done that in cities that you need at least 60, if not 80 seats, you know what I mean? So that you can, so when you have peak business that you can yeah. turn it over and turn it over. Yeah. So as to pay for the so the, that you the, can do the weekdays, two sittings yeah. of forty covers yeah. and sort of rotate, them or even 20, two yeah. cities, a si- two sittings of six, or three sittings of six. You know I mean whatever yeah, yeah. you know the whole idea about early birds and all this sort of stuff. Just to and keep the restaurant and keep it going over. because see one of the things about a restaurant or a hotel or any of these things is that it's. Uh, we talk about seat hours, our beds. You know, yeah. it's bed per- it's it bed nights. It's perishable. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can't sell it again. You can't. You can't say. You know, if if someone doesn't come in today. You know, you can't yeah. sell that tomorrow yeah. because that's you only get the one chance at it, and then it's not it's not even we have a thing called rev pash, which is revenue per available seat hour. So it's how often you turn the seats. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that you know, I'll so. never look at it the same way yeah, again. Yeah. But before we let you go, Martin, I have to ask you one question that's been burning my mind. 
what's your comfort food? What's your go-to? If you just say, I'm a little bit peckish, I'm going to put something together, what's it going to be? Okay, my go-to comfort food, I had two of them, but mashed potato with mashed carrots and parsnips puree mixed through it. My, my eight months old right. son loves that as well. <laughs> Plenty of butter and then like a mixed grill, like some nice sausages and rashers. So that's one. And then the other one there would be just a good old chicken stew or a good old beef stew. Again, with mashed potatoes, plenty of butter in it. You know what I mean? So, what are you yeah, saying, Gardine? Yeah. What's your comfort food? I think it'll have to be a good stew. When, I'm, when I've been away for a while, I come home, I just want a stew. But my mum's stew. Like nobody else's <laughs> stew. Yeah, it's very, very important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock the trend here. It's not a big meal. It's nothing heavy. It's a toasted cheese sandwich. Can't beat it. Good Irish cheese. Solid. Bit of mustard on it now? Of course. Ah, mustard. It's all the nuances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as I'm trying to follow that Eat Lancet report and reduce it, I won't be going for cheese and ham. Just cheese, onion, a little bit of mustard, batch bread, pint of Guinness. Thanks a million. (laughs) 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 On that bombshell, Martin Gramila Magadas Chaktasak. Fawlty. Garadine. It's a slam for us. I think we've forgotten how to end the podcast, but we'll just kill it there. Thanks a million. Iowa Slan. Motherfuck Lore is a podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network and comes out every Friday. Uh, you can get us at motherfucklore at headstuff.org for feedback, comments, queries, or suggestions. Thanks as always to Brian for producing and to Kirsten Shield for the amazing artwork. We'll be back next week, Slan. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Damien Dempsey, you know. I've a few CDs out there now, you know, so you can buy them after the show. And if you don't like me, you can buy them for people you don't like. Yeah. <laughs>